Prim. How are you? I'm so glad to have you here today. Um, your unapologetically Black unicorn self. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Karis, for the invitation and the opportunity. I'm honored to join you in this. Yeah, I always love the conversations that we've had over the years around uh, the intersection of race and mental health, emotional well-being, especially for Black and Brown folks, and your commitment to ensuring folks have what they need at the community level, the individual level, to live, you know, as healthy lives as they possibly can. So I call you Dr. Prim, but really I call you Anel. So I hope it's okay if I call you Anel. Of course, of course. Um, but people should know you're a psychiatrist. Yes, I am a psychiatrist and I am a community psychiatrist, which basically means that when I think about psychiatry and mental health, I'm not just thinking about the one-on-one of, you know, sitting down with a person in a clinical setting and working with them, but I'm also thinking about populations and communities and what goes on in those communities that may or may not promote mental health. And how, how was it that you decided to get into psychiatry? You know, I don't ever think we've ever talked about, like, how you came into the field. Well, from an early age, I was always interested in listening to people and, you know, maybe their problems and concerns. And I, you know, wanted to be a part of the solution and helping them you know, work out some of those issues. So I I thought I would be a psychiatrist. My dad was a physician and I know that influenced me as well. He took me on house calls with him when I was as young as five years old. Not to mention that I really loved the psychiatry textbooks that we were assigned in medical school. And, you know, I took them to bed with me as pleasure reading and I realized, you know, just how, how fascinating the study of the brain and the mind is. And, um, you know, I had a wonderful experience doing my psychiatry rotation in medical school at Walter Reed Hospital and uh, working with largely at that time um, Vietnam veterans and, mm-hmm. you know, learning about the trauma and experiences that they had had. And so, you know, I finally realized that, you know, this is me. It's it's a very good fit. And I must say, I'm really glad that I chose psychiatry as a specialty because of, you know, just how many dimensions there are to it. And, you know, you can have such a varied experience. um, and, And I'm thankful for the varied experience that I've had from, you know, doing clinical work and administrative work, teaching, public speaking and writing, you know, a little bit of research uh, and also engaging with communities on, you know, various projects um, that you know, relate to the mental health and well-being of communities. Well, we're glad that you're in psychiatry too. Otherwise, I might not have met you, um, I think, through maybe NAMI, uh, NAMI Urban LA in particular. And, you know, it's not very often we get to see Black folks as psychiatrists. There are a number of them. There are a lot. Um, but uh, sometimes, you know, you don't get to actually see folks uh, who, who look like you in this profession. You know, when I met you at NAMI Urban LA, 
you know, they were rising up as a African-American centered affiliate of the National Alliance on Mental um, Illness and focusing on the mental health of their community. So how did you get involved with NAMI Urban LA and get to meet some of the folks there? I got involved with NAMI Urban LA. I'm I'm not going to remember the year, but it was in the 2000s. And um, I was working at the American Psychiatric Association at the time, uh, serving as the director of what was then called the Office of Minority and National Affairs. And so, um, you know, I was all about diversity in mental health and eliminating disparities and you know, uh, working towards mental health equity. One of the projects that I had the opportunity to participate in on behalf of the American Psychiatric Association was a partnership with the National Alliance on Mental Illness Multicultural Action Center. And we decided to undertake a joint project to develop, you know, mental health psychiatry primary care collaboration that focused on the mental health of diverse populations who are often very likely to be first seen and only seen in the primary care setting. We developed a curriculum um, that addressed those three dimensions, you know, primary care, mental health, and people of color. And we, um, We were very conscious of engaging people with lived experience to educate folks in primary care. And, you know, we we delivered this curriculum initially in pilots uh, to places like NAMI Urban LA. We partnered with NAMI Urban LA to identify leaders uh, who would join us. We did it also in St. Louis and in New Orleans. So it was a wonderful experience. And I think that's where I first met you because you were one of the folks um, affiliated with NAMI Urban LA, you know, who came to one of these trainings. So anyway, that, that's, um, that's how my connection yeah. uh, with NAMI Urban LA yeah. began. And I was just delighted to see the kind of leadership that existed there and the, the many champions like yourself that were, you know, gathered there and, you know, doing all sorts of creative things uh, to raise awareness about mental health uh, in communities of color. And it really, that was not happening in many places mm-hmm. at that time. You know, it was not known as a diverse organization necessarily, um, but, NAMI Urban LA was really, you know, the first NAMI chapter that I was aware of that really put the issues of the mental health of people of color on the map. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I, people like yourself and um, B.B. Moore Campbell. Yeah, as you were talking, because I couldn't remember how we first met, that is exactly, (laughs) is that exactly how and where we first met. I was so interested in the project because it was uh, NAMI Urban LA, you know, at the time and maybe still does went by NULA. Um, and I was a member of another NAMI affiliate in uh, the city that I lived in, in Pasadena. So I sort of was, you know, a member of two NAMI affiliates, one that was, you know, in the 
you know, city that I lived in of Pasadena and then NAMI urban LA where I could be around people who look like me and kind of, you know, it was a really, really uh, powerful experience. And, um, you know, remember that curriculum, I think we called it in living color, you know, two snaps up, not that in living color, yes, <laughs> but the other in living color. Um, and it was so meaningful. That's right. Thank you. Yeah. To, uh, to be able to uh, work on something that was specifically addressing the needs of our communities in primary care, where most of us might be going to get services, either because of lack of access to mental health care or, you know, because of the stigma, not wanting to go directly to mental uh, health care specifically, but being um, having that opportunity for primary care to be aware of uh, our needs around uh, mental health and emotional wellness. So you taught, you brought up um, knowing B.B. Moore Campbell. I only met her once at a book reading, but she's another kind of powerhouse. Um, and we have July, which is B.B. Moore Campbell Minority Mental Health Month. And we know there's like now people are calling it BIPOC and we don't like the term minority, totally get that. For, for many communities, uh, folks of color are no longer in the minority, but um, can you talk a little bit um, about B.B. Moore Campbell and her legacy? Sure. Well, B.B. Moore Campbell was a you know, prolific author and um, you know, was really truly a mental health champion and, and super advocate. And um, I remember she was a part of a group of, of women who called themselves the NAMI Mommies, who helped to spearhead the establishment of NAMI Urban LA. And, you know, I think um, one part of B.B. Moore Campbell's legacy is that she just really elevated, you know, this conversation about Um, the mental health of people of color and just the reality surrounding that because in other communities not of color, you know, the issue of mental illness and people being discriminated against because of, of having a mental illness or a family member with a mental illness, you know, that was kind of a baseline issue. But when you overlay being a person of color in this society and the quote unquote, you know, double stigma that having a mental health issue and being a person of color, it's, it's really a, a double whammy, so to speak, in terms of the discrimination associated with each aspect of, you know, one's experience, one's lived experience, and, um, you know, one's racial and ethnic identity, you know, something must be done to ensure that, people of color with mental health needs, you know, get the care that they need Mm -hmm. getting in the door. That's one barrier to surmount. But then the, the issue around what happens once you get in that room is the person on the other side, you know, the, the table or the desk or whatever, do they understand you? Do they have the cultural humility, you know, to appreciate where you're, coming from to be able to evaluate you in in an objective way and to give you, you know, appropriate quality treatment, you Mm -hmm. know, taking into account all aspects of your life, which may be very different from that person, you know, providing the mental health services. And so, you know, having that kind of advocacy coming from this, you know, powerful, well-known individual, she just really put these issues on the map and it became a springboard 
for really all of us to be vocal about these issues, to, you know, to give presentations in national settings and, you know, to really make this a big deal. And so when B.B. Moore Campbell undertook this campaign to actually, you know, declare that a month would be designated for the observance and acknowledgement of mental health in communities of color was just a huge deal. And the fact that she did this as, you know, she was very ill Mm -hmm. uh, and that, um, you know, her supporters rallied around her and pushed to actually get this month observance of July through Congress, you know, got numerous congressional supporters on board to make this a reality. So, you know, I'm so glad that, you know, I'm living in a time when we look to her with such reverence uh, and appreciation for, you know, her tireless efforts uh, to, to keep the, the issue of mental health of people of color in the forefront. I think we were, you were talking earlier about people, you know, changing the name last year. You know, I think most of us really feel a strong need to continue saying her name mm-hmm. and underscoring that this was through the, the efforts, the initiative and the vision you know, of this very talented Black woman, you know, who was so committed to this cause. Okay, you just put on your unicorn horn. Thank you very much for that unapologetically Black unicorn moment. (laughs) (laughs) That is, that is, it was so interesting to kind of see everybody calling it suddenly in this past year after the deaths and of so many, well, the killings of so many folks to, uh, you know, the new terminology is, you know, BIPOC or Black Indigenous people of, and people of color. So suddenly B.B. Moore Campbell Minority Mental Health Month was BIPOC Mental Health Month. And it was like, wait, what, 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 what just happened? <laughs> like, no, I mean, yes, and is, is kind of how I do my nose, like, yes, and um, we have to say her name, we have to remember kind of how we got to this point, not to at all, you know, poo-poo on the fact that terminology changes as time changes, people try the best way to identify themselves um, in relation to others and or in response to things that are going on. That's great. Um, However, this is named after a very powerful Black woman who advocated on behalf of Black folks and folks of color that we need to say her name, as you said, and uh, carry it forth. So it could be, you know, B.B. Moore Campbell BIPOC month. I have no idea, but B.B. Moore Campbell's name does need to be there so that uh, we don't lose sight of that genesis. So speaking of needs of of Black folks, I got to meet B.B. at a, well, I I knew her through NAMI Urban LA uh, a little bit, not a lot, but finally, my parents got to meet her when she was doing a reading of one of her books, 72 Hour Hold, and they were out here in Los Angeles. So I asked them to come to this reading. And my mother's name is Bibi as well. So I thought it would be really poignant on many levels for my mom to meet another mom who has a um, adult child with a mental health condition and also uh, for her to see a Black mom kind of uh, um, maybe going through some of the things that my own mom went through. And it was a powerful meeting. It was really, really kind of cool to see them 
the two BBs <laughs> kind of meeting together and having a moment. So it was really powerful. Yes. Yes. And, you know, when I think of families and people living with um, mental health conditions or not, especially over these past so many years, but, you know, it's generational, but like, how do we keep up our emotional wellness, our emotional fortitude, I'll put it that way, when there are so many things that are impacting our ability to be and stay well from just the police violence, the poverty, uh, you know, systematic issues, like what are some of the ways or uh, that people can stay and be well when we're kind of surrounded by this day in and day out? Yes. I mean, I think that this has been a critical issue, especially over the last year. And, you know, I think it's been an issue all along for, you know, Black people in this country, you know, having to deal with, you know, some of the structural inequities and the social determinants of health that, you know, just affect all aspects of our life, but particularly affect our mental health. It has had a piling on, a layering effect um, that has been very traumatic, you know, collectively uh, to, to Black people in particular. And so how to deal with that, you know, there are a number of ways, you know, I think limiting media exposure um, and really avoiding the repetitive and ongoing viewing of some of these very violent and, you know, disturbing and egregious acts, making people feel devalued as Black people and negated as if Black lives don't matter um, given just how frequently these things were occurring. And, you know, all of us knowing that that could have been us or, you know, somebody very close to us. And so that's one way, you know, limit some of the repetitive exposures uh, to, you know, these violent, tragic episodes. Secondly is is being very conscious and deliberate about taking care of ourselves. And, you know, that may sound like a platitude in some ways, but it really is important for people to maintain their equilibrium in the face of the stressors that come along with living in this society right now. So we really do need to be conscious of, you know, trying to get sufficient rest and staying hydrated and, you know, trying to eat balanced meals and trying to get, you know, some sunshine, you know, for vitamin D and some physical activity, which is also good for our bodies and our minds. And, you know, whatever sort of spiritual practice or meditation or yoga or, you know, whatever brings people joy, you know, because I think that we really underestimate the pleasurable activities, um, you know, that each of us uh, go to, you know, whether that's, you know, reading or knitting or dance, uh, you know, creating art, whatever that may be, you know, I really encourage people to be very deliberate about engaging in those things that bring joy because it, it really serves as a counterbalance to some of the negative things going on. And if you're deliberately seeking out 
the positive things that bring you joy, it really does offset, you know, some of those negative sensory inputs that we are being bombarded with all the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think staying connected to the people that you care about. This is one of the reasons why, you know, in the midst of the pandemic, when even though we might have needed to be apart physically, that we really sought to find ways to stay connected socially. Yes. You know, and fortunately, we have a lot of means by which to do that today so that, you know, the, the social aspects and the, that we could maintain relationships. And, you know, fortunately, uh, there have been um, some, you know, very innovative strategies that organizations like the Community Healing Network and the Association of Black Psychologists have created back in the early 2000s, the something called emotional emancipation circles uh, were developed by those organizations, which created safe spaces for members of the Black community to come together to process the ways in which white supremacy um, has affected Black people, you know, over the past um, 400 plus years, mm. but do so to do so collectively, understanding the history and understanding how people have survived through that and the sorts of of coping skills they have used and just ways of liberating their minds to prevent the internalization of of some of the negation of Black life and Black excellence. This is, you know, when uh, you first, I think you had sent me an email about the emotional emancipation healing circles and the work that was being done And when I read it, so I'm going to say it again, because I think that each word is so powerful, right? Emotional emancipation, healing, emotional emancipation, healing. Like I have to say it over and over and over again, because um, it so resonates kind of with who we are as a people and what we've been through and what we need to be free of and how to free ourselves of of that um, by addressing some of the historical people that have have said, well, you know, slavery was 400 years ago, like, get over it. <laughs> you know, my father says, well, all of that's still in our DNA. And I thought, wow, like, what does that really mean? It's like, no, we collectively understand what that is as peers to one another um, and working through our emotional health and wellness. Just so powerful, you know, to, 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 to know that these things are happening in the, at the community level uh, for uh, particularly Black folk and uh, people of color. You know, I always think about, oh, what should, how can we empower people? Or I always say people have the uh, power. We can't empower them, but how, because they already have it, but how can we help people use that uh, power to kind of move move forward in, in these times? It, I think people are finally getting it. You know, we have a new administration. You know, what what can people do now, do you think? What are some of the things that we could be doing now? Having these conversations, number one, I would say. <laughs> uh, what what else could we be doing? Um, I think that we should be encouraging people, including young people, to look around their communities and to s- call out those things that they see that aren't right. Let's say communities where there aren't enough 
they've been referred to as food deserts, and I don't know if that's the correct term now, but communities where there is not ready access, you know, within proximity to, you know, fresh foods and vegetables and, or, or communities where, you know, every other corner, there are liquor stores. And so, you know, there are more liquor stores than there are places where people can get healthy food. And so, you know, working on changing something that's clearly not in the community's best interest. And, you know, sometimes those patterns um, that we see in, in certain Black communities that may be economically distressed, you know, are part of the elements that contribute to some of the disparities in longevity that you could see within certain neighborhoods of a, of a city like Baltimore, where I live, compared to other parts that might be more affluent uh, and racially homogeneous. And so, you know, just being observant, noticing, you know, what is not right, and then finding people who also are disturbed by those kinds of disparities or injustices and, and begin to map out a strategy and identify more allies to change that thing, you know, whether it's through, you know, working with legislators or, you know, just working on the community level. But I think the the critical piece is, is that you have to organize. It's hard to do that kind of thing by yourself, but if you can bring people together or join an organization that's already focused on these issues and, you know, join forces to, to make those kinds of changes, you know, I think, those kinds of efforts offer promise. And I encourage young people in particular to become a part of those things because it's really, it should be a part of our succession planning yes. to have young people start very early, you know, being aware of how best to collectively identify issues in communities that need to be changed and, you know, brainstorming and exchanging information and, uh, strategizing about, you know, how those things or what are the steps mm-hmm. uh, and what are the, uh, you know, the portals th- and the levers, you know, yes. by which these things um, can can get done. And um, so I've, you know, been fortunate to be a part of organizations like that, that that seek to to make change, you know, for the better, that are are driven by people in communities, you know, by those people, for those people. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that's happening more and more, you know, things like, you know, community-based participatory or community-driven, community-led, you know, these things I think are being acknowledged more that it's it's critical right. to have, to, to spawn that type of leadership and continue to support yes. and grow um, that kind of leadership in communities to make changes that are necessary. To grow our unapologetically Black unicorn um, <laughs> out there. So I think that's actually, first of all, I think you've done a good job of doing that yourself. I certainly wouldn't be where I am today had I not met you, had you not 
either knowingly or whether I bugged you about it. I have no idea, but I, I maybe it was a little bit of both, uh, you know, taken me under your wing and supported me and kind of said, oh, come here or, oh, present with me or, oh, do you want to be on this um, work group or this panel? Uh, it's such an example of um, how I've grown into being an unapologetically Black unicorn. I don't think I came out of the womb that way, but could be. <laughs> but uh, certainly, I think, uh, you know, you have been such a good, wonderful mentor and teacher, friend, colleague to me, and um, uh, also an example of how I can also bring up other people alongside. So, you know, I want to give you that recognition and bow down bow down before you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because, uh, uh, oh, well, you know, I, I, I just want to say that this is one thing I remember. I think it was at a NAMI conference and I had to, oh, I think I told you that I had either be gotten on the board or become the president of the board. I don't remember what it was one of those two really like pivotal things. I think it was being, um, elected president. And I, I couldn't tell anybody, but I like whispered it to you and I was crying. <laughs> and you were like, what are you crying about? Like, oh, are you okay? Hello? Like, are you? And I was like, no, I'm crying because I don't think I could have gotten here had it not been for you and you supporting me. I mean, I don't have words for what this means, not just to me, but to the many people who you have supported in their careers, um, in their, in their lives. Um, just because you are an unapologetically black unicorn. And I think you are thinking about succession planning, mentoring and creating, um, you know, the new um, up and coming leadership. Well, thank you for all of that. It's been a two way street because I've learned so much from you and continue to learn. So it's really been a, a co a co mentoring yeah. relationship and, um, you know, you, you too have, you know, positioned me and really poured into me and, um, you know, you're my go-to person for so many things, um, you know, as a confidant and advisor, uh, you know, on all issues, you know, related to mental health advocacy and mental health policy. And so ours has been one of those relationships that, has been, you know, symbiotic and mutually beneficial. And um, another example as, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts mm-hmm. because there's just been so many areas and organizations um, working collaboratively, you and I, along with others, you know, that we've been able to, to make a mark. And so that is just so you know, joyous, you know, to be able to be a part of a, um, a group of forward thinking people that I think, you know, we, we have certainly made a difference. And I'm, you know, just so thankful to you for being, you know, that kind of a partner and friend and, uh, and comrade in this struggle, yes. you know, and the struggle continues. Yes, for sure. It continues. It's ongoing. Um, Yes, yes, but I, I feel encouraged by, you know, what we have done and, um, you know, challenged by what remains for us. And um, we're going to move forward. Absolutely. And just for amplifying with, with your podcast, uh, amplifying this work and this topic, because I don't know that, you know, this, these kinds of conversations are 
taking place very often at all, you know, especially through through this lens, you know, and uh, that you have created this the space that you've created. Yeah, it's been really interesting. It's also been fun because you know we have these conversations together on the phone or through text, and it's like, wait a second. <laughs> It's like, and at the end of them, we're usually like, oh, I really wish somebody could have heard that. Um, so I thought, well, maybe this is an opportunity to help people hear some of the things that folks are talking about, either in private or in smaller groups, and um, bring it to the larger, I don't want to say the larger world. I don't, I'm not that, I'm not that big, but you know what I'm saying? So I just, I just think it's critically important for us to elevate uh, the conversation so other folks can hear it. So thank you for being willing to do that with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so there'll be more unapologetically uh, Black unicorns um, every week. Um, But this has been just a joy and a pleasure. So thank you, Dr. Prim, and more next week. Thank you so much. All the best.